Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 44 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm joined by nutritionist Steph Lowe. Steph is a sports nutritionist, a triathlete and founder of The Natural Nutritionist, a hub for celebrating the importance of real food and she's the author of The Real Food Athlete. She has a passion for spreading a positive message about real food and the incredible effect it has on performance. Steph launched The Natural Nutritionist in 2011 and is on a mission to inspire others to make healthy a priority in their lives. Steph's extensive nutritional experience spans from elite athletes to schools and corporations where she has worked with the likes of Grilled to develop a new menu item and Savills where she educated corporates about real food for productivity and performance in the workplace. Along with self-publishing her first book, The Real Food Athlete, and running The Natural Nutritionist, Steph is also the resident nutritionist in Sam Wood's online program, 28 by Sam Wood, and is the creator of seven ebooks available on her website. Steph and I talk all about going low carb today. You might have seen LCHF, which stands for low carb, high fat. And it's definitely a way of eating that has made me feel a lot better. Now, I've got something to share with you guys. I really feel like I have kind of fallen off the wagon, so to speak, with my diet of late, really pronounced by my trip, my month-long trip traveling in the States and Canada, where I just didn't have a kitchen for a month. And I did stay with some gorgeous people along the way and ate some gorgeous food with them. But as you know, when you're traveling, it's really difficult to eat really good quality food 100% of the time. And I came back to Australia just feeling really there. I'd put on several kilos, so many more pounds than they are kilos. Uh, I'd eaten way more carbohydrates than I would normally eat. I had had sugar, I'd had alcohol. I just came back feeling really quite gross and it's not the way I want to live. It's not how I want to look because I'm carrying way more weight on my frame than I feel comfortable with. 
And so after today's recording of the podcast, I actually reached out to Steph and I asked if she would work with me to help me refine my diet and to help me uncover what is going on in my body. I put on weight very, very, very easily, which is really frustrating. You know, I expect to put on weight when I do trips overseas, but my weight has increased by 10 kilos in the space of 12 months, which is about 20 odd pound. That's a lot of weight for somebody that is eating pretty healthily. So Steph's going to be working with me and I really look forward to sharing with you guys my journey, what we discover. We have done huge amounts of blood tests so that she can see what's happening in my body. And I'm really positive about, you know, adding Steph to my dream team, my healthcare dream team of people that can help me continue to move towards even better health than I have today. So without further ado, I'll start the podcast and I really hope you enjoy today's episode with Steph Lowe. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Steph Lowe. It's really wonderful to have you on my podcast today because I have had the great pleasure of being a guest on your podcast previously. So it's great to share the love and have you talking to the Healthy Gut Podcast listeners. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on your show. My pleasure. Now, you are a sports nutritionist and, um, and in fact, we... Uh, not at the same time, but trained um, with a triathlon group here in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and we have a wonderful mutual friend. And, um, and I'd love for you to share your story around how you got into that and, and you really enjoy um, being a very active woman and, um, and just your own personal journey with all of that. Yeah, look, I'll try and keep it relatively brief. Um, it doesn't start with sports nutrition. It actually starts way back in my um, teenage years, actually, when I developed a, a real interest in health and nutrition. Um, but I did take it a little bit too far back in the day of, you know, calorie counting and low-fat eating I developed, um, you know, what I can now see is um, orthorexia and, you know, I lost a lot of weight but I, at the time I was on this this search for happiness which I thought was wrapped up in that kilogram number on the scales. When I got to, you know, 49 kilos I had this epiphany that, that you know, it wasn't the weight that was going to be what would make me happy per se. So I went on a bit of a journey to move into the real food space to explore how eating real food can have a huge influence on things like your mood and ultimately your happiness. And, you know, I was able to heal my relationship with food and, and, and turn it into a really positive passion. I have a, you know, a, a extreme passion for spreading the message around real food and it's, you know, its impact on health and now performance. So, you know, I went back to study nutrition at a tertiary level in 2009 so I could have the qualifications to be able to share what I had learnt but also, you know, educate essentially the world on the benefits of real food because, you know, throughout my time working in the health space I could, you know, I clearly identify that there was a big gap in what we were being told and, you know, what we actually needed to do to live a healthy life. So that led me to start working as a nutritionist and then with my, you know, my personal interest in 
triathlon and endurance. So I was able to marry the two up and, you know, now I work largely with athletes to teach the benefits of real food for not only performance but our athletic longevity um, and my company, The Natural Nutritionist, works with athletes worldwide now, which is amazing and I'm super grateful to do what I do each and every day. And it's so interesting how for so many of us it is this personal experience with our mm. own struggles and issues and orthorexia and, and other eating, disordered eating that often lead us to this pinnacle at where we realize that um, you know the way that we've been educated in the past perhaps isn't the right way and that there are other ways to approach food and nutrition and health and when we go through it ourselves we I think we can become some of the best advocates for those else, else uh, other people in the world that we can then help because we know firsthand what it feels like and I, I really I feel dismayed at that low um, fat message that just got indoctrinated mm. to us. Um, I think particularly as women, you know, we were told that fat was so bad for us and it, it, it tied in so beautifully as a marketing message around what gaining weight and being overweight and all the rest so that women like you and I were just I was so fat phobic I would cut every visible little bit of fat off my meat I wouldn't go near oils or anything because I was terrified that if I ate a little bit of fat that it would just mean that I would be obese and in fact what it was doing it was doing to me was it was making me sick but <laughs> being so fat phobic yet it took me a really long time to get my head around incorporating fat into my diet and it's still a work in progress. Can you talk a bit about that process for you around how you went from being, you know, quite um, controlled with your calorie counting and um, being having orthorexia, which is a fear of food and, um, and just, you know, trying to avoid fat to now incorporating a much higher fat intake yeah. into your daily um, nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I will say, you know, it's, it's certainly a process, you know, and I say this to all my clients that, you know, if, if you've only eaten a certain way, or if it's something that you've done for, you know, a good proportion of your life, I totally appreciate the, you know, the overwhelm or the confusion that you might be facing in the health space, because we are forever exposed to quite different messages and you know, some are very much incorporated into our national guidelines. But me personally, um, I think, you know, the getting to that, you know, that magic number on the scales and then still not being happy and still not being in that place of health for me was a, a huge light bulb that there had to be another way. You know, I think what I, I was fortunate enough to be able to dive into the research and with it being, you know, firstly a, a long lifelong passion of mine and then something I went on to dive really deep into the research with, I was able to separate that fact from fiction. But the overarching aim is to remember that food should be in its natural whole food state. So when we look at the vast majority of low-fat inverted commas, food, they're not actually food. You know, they're created in a lab with a high degree of human interference. And if the fat's been taken out, something, and it's either sugar and or salt, has been put back in to create some sort of a flavor profile. 
so having that perspective around real food and that nature knows best is still, you know, what I use, a tool I use to this day to make decisions around what I put in my body and how I answer questions that I might get from, you know, my audience or your audience and, you know, how we continue to evolve our own personal real food journey. Because foods that have this high degree of human interference, like the low-fat foods and that that huge section of the food industry is not, you know, they're not in their natural state and they don't offer us optimal health. So whilst it might might have been overwhelming for me back then and it can certainly be the case for many people that are trying to move away from that low-fat era, that low-fat dogma, um, the perspective about real food can be really, really powerful. And I think, you know, that's something that, we can continue to use as we make those food decisions. Definitely. And it's amazing how much better you feel when you start to eat real food versus this kind of Franken food that we get that's low fat and low whatever or gluten free. And I I've just come back from a month of traveling around the States and Canada on, you know, my tour promoting my really exciting new US editions of my cookbooks and not having a kitchen for a month and being on the go every few days traveling to a new city meant that I was eating a lot of processed food that I wouldn't normally eat. And it just really reinforced to me how ordinary I feel when I'm not eating natural food. Now, I tried to eat the best available options, but what I learned in American airports is that it's carb central. There are so many carbohydrates and to try and find a good quality protein and vegetable source when you're traveling for an entire day, going to multiple airports is virtually impossible. And I often didn't even have a chance to get to a supermarket to pack food. And, you know, it was just, it was an interesting experiment and I've come home and I can't tell you how excited I've been to eat real food again. It really, I feel immediately better already just knowing that I'm getting good quality nutrition back in and and it will, you know, take some time for my body to recover from the huge processed food overload that it's just had to endure. And, uh, And what's incredible is that was my life. That's how I lived for 36 years and, you know, no wonder I didn't feel good. <laughs> yeah, and like you mentioned before about how, you know, the low-fat food that you were eating was making you sick. Like it's really, really important to acknowledge the role that healthy fats have in the human body, like especially for women. Like we know that our hormones are made on fats and proteins, of course. So what we often see in a female that's coming from a low-fat eating approach is quite severe hormonal dysfunction and that can manifest in many ways and for some it's the absence of a menstrual cycle for others it can be that really poor you know blood sugar control it can be you know dysfunctional adrenals like it's you can be really different across the you know across the individuals but we need to, we need to remember that our body is dependent on these good fats to survive and you know what's amazing is when you can get to that place where you're comfortable including these amazing sources of nutrition in your life that you can really regulate your hormones which has you know powerful influences on you know every aspect of your health 
It's it's so interesting. And when I look back over the course of my life, at the height of my fat phobia, it was probably the height of my hormonal dysregulation mm. and just the huge hormonal swings that I was going through. Now, admittedly, I didn't know that they were that bad. But talking to my mum in recent times, she's talked about how they really only got one week out of me, out of my cycle that was nice, Rebecca. The rest of the time I I was either crying at the drop of the hat or I was screaming at them and and they were like, oh my God, who is this child that we have produced? But it was my hormones that were completely out of balance, but I was eating a very high carbohydrate diet. I was quite repulsed by animal meat. So I didn't eat a lot of meat and the meat that I ate was incredibly lean and I was terrified of fat. So I was, I probably wasn't getting any fat into my daily or very minimal fat into my daily intake. You know, I was cooking with nonstick pans, using the tiniest little spray of oil on them, um, you know, trying to restrict the oil I could get as much as possible. And um, and no wonder I was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> and it's And I lived like that for so many years because I thought, that that was the right way to live. And I know many of my listeners um, are the same. I was saying to you before we started recording that since coming back, I'm, I've am i really swung straight back into a low-carb, high-fat way of eating. And I'm looking at experimenting with going to a more ketogenic-style diet. So let's talk a, around that, that approach to low-carb, high-fat. And first... I'd love to address some of the concerns that people have, which is we need to have, um, we must be eating grains and carbs in our day. If we don't, we will die. You know, what's, can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can start with the, those recommendations, which are, you know, essentially in our food pyramid in, in Australia and um, certainly in the developed world. So the recommendations, you know, over the years have, have been the six to 11 serves of whole grains per day. And that's unfortunately a, a myth that has been, I guess, indoctrinated with the influence of the agricultural industry. So I hate to sound like a sceptic, but we do have to have a look at, you know, where the the research is coming from and who's funding the research and how that then flows down into our national guidelines. So it's a really big problem with that intake of carbohydrates because on someone's plate over the course of the day, that can look like, you know, 400 or even 600 grams of carbohydrates per day. And that for anyone is a disaster. There are so many effects that that will create. But if we sort of take it step by step throughout the day, you know, when you start your day with a really, really high carbohydrate intake, you start this catalyst of the blood sugar roller coaster. And this is the vicious cycle where, you know, what goes up must come down. So you get the spike out of that carbohydrate, but it's very short lived. So you then get the crash on the other side, which can be that 10am, you know, muffin as you go and get your morning coffee. And the roller coaster continues throughout the day. So by about 3.30, we're either needing a nap underneath our desk or we're looking for more sugar or, or coffee. And, you know, I think 
people are so used to feeling that way that they think it's normal. They, they, they think it's normal to have those cravings and to need those carbohydrates. But what it actually does is it creates this sugar-burning metabolism. So, again, it's a vicious cycle where you need the carbohydrates to fuel your body. And, you know, it might, it might feel like you can't live without them because that's the only fuel your body can burn for energy. So it becomes this, this incessant need where, you know, you're basically having to eat every two hours. And, and that's not normal. But, of course, you're buying more food and you're supporting the industry and, you know, ultimately, unfortunately, it does come back to the dollar. So you, the good news is, though, is that you, completely, you can completely reverse all of that and have a different experience by eating real food and having, you know, your version of an LCHF, a low-carb, high-fat template. It's so interesting when you talk about that because that was my life. I would um, have a mm. cereal or toast for breakfast. I'd be starving by 10 a.m. I'd have some kind of sugary or carb-based snack, which in effect was all sugar. Uh, I would have you know, a sandwich or a roll for lunch. I'd then have a massive crash at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I'd be pumping myself up on caffeine and sugar. I'd then have dinner, which always had some carbohydrates to it. It might have been rice or pasta or potato. Uh, and then I'd be starving again at eight or nine o'clock. So I'd be reaching for something sweet. And then it would it was just a vicious cycle. And, and since my first experience with reducing those huge swings was when I went gluten-free back in the early 2000s. And I had a huge amount more energy. But I was replacing the gluten products with gluten-free products, which are more refined in some cases, and there's more crap in them. And so once I then moved more to a paleo way of eating, I realized that I could have breakfast and go all the way through to the afternoon, sometimes to two or three o'clock in the afternoon before I started to feel like I needed to eat again. And it was such a huge change for me because I had been really a victim to this two-hour eating and I had you know listened to the messages that we must eat you know have your three meals and snacks between and I was a good student a good disciple of that mantra (laughs) oh my god I used to literally be sitting by my watch waiting for that two-hour mark to to tick over so that I could eat again and you know it becomes really unhealthy it does not help those of us that have a history of you know disordered eating or that orthorexia I mentioned because you become consumed by food and your next meal and I know you've experienced the opposite now and that for me was so life-changing and it is for all of my clients not just the women where finally you can go you know five hours without food but it's so interesting when someone hears that the first time you know especially someone that's following a food pyramid and then athletes that are really in that carbohydrate trap they're complete sugar burners so when you tell them that it is possible to not eat for five or more hours, they think you are bat crazy. Like they think that you are have literally fallen out of a tree because they cannot fathom the idea of not needing to fuel themselves every couple of hours. But what's so amazing is when the meal frequency is just the default, you know, I will never say to someone like don't eat, but what happens when you build your plate properly and you 
have a good understanding of what macronutrient balance suits you, you simply just don't need to eat for five hours or more. And that's a really great piece of feedback that your body is giving you that you're transforming yourself from being that sugar burner to being a fat burner. And for our athletes, we we want them to be the fat adapted athlete so they can access their fat stores and, and still use the glycogen for, you know, high intensity, which, which I'm sure we'll explore further. But, you know, it is the best of both worlds and it completely changes your day-to-day experience and your relationship with food. It's quite liberating moving mm. away from having to eat every two hours. I've got to say, I, you know, life-changing. It, it is life-changing mm. and you have so much more time in the day <laughs> because you're not always eating. <laughs> Absolutely. And digestively, it's it's very healthy. Exactly. Mm. How do we transition? Um, you know, I know that many of my listeners, being um, people with SIBO, they're already probably having a, a lower carbohydrate intake than the average person because of their condition and that dictates that they, they reduce their carbohydrates. But the one thing I hear very commonly when I talk about going low carb, high fat, or that's the way I've lived now for a while as my general um, default position is oh I could never do it I have to I have to have carbs how do how do we approach it when we're we're in that kind of mindset yeah absolutely I think it's a, it's a great question and and the start is the hardest right because what happens when you're a sugar burning person is that you know you, you are an addict you know your drug of choice is sugar and it, it, it stimulates the same opioid receptors in the brain as a, a drug like cocaine does. We know that. Science has shown us that. So it's a process and you have to be willing to go through what we call the metabolic gray zone. And this is the, the, the days and hopefully it's, you know, only four to seven the, the first few days where you literally are transforming across to that fat-burning metabolism, but you, you can't burn fat straight away. So there's this grey zone where you can feel quite depleted, where, you know, you've dropped the sugar and you're transitioning over to burning fat. So what you need to do to make that start, you know, as easy as possible is work on the amount of food so certainly it's not going to be a calorie counting platform and starting to get really comfortable with adding in an abundance of healthy fats because you know whilst we might eventually set up the meal timing a bit differently initially it's great just to eat to satiety and and not worry about you know meal windows or or meal frequency but fill your plate with you know an abundance of non-starchy veggies, a palm-sized piece of quality protein, and then fats to satiety so that you're managing your blood sugar control, which very much manages those cravings. It will be challenging for a couple of days, but I think when you know that and you know that it's only short-lived, it can make it much more you know, easier to, to wrap your head around and appreciate that it is that transition zone. And then once you're over that hump, you'll wonder how you ever lived otherwise because you finally got that blood sugar control that, you know, that you and I have been talking about, Rebecca. It's a function of the food choices that you make. So managing cravings, you know, it starts with what goes on your plate 
Uh, and I can give you some more information about portions if that would be useful. But there's so many other elements as well. Like we forget that thirst is often interpreted as hunger by the brain. So making sure you're hydrated. We know that if we're not sleeping properly, we crave sugar and carbohydrate because they are that immediate source of energy. So increasing the amount of hours of sleep that you get when you're making that transition is really important. And then we can use, you know, herbs and, and spices. We know that cinnamon is great for controlling blood sugar and there are specific herbs that we can use as well if someone's really struggling with those cravings. There's a lot of tools that you can have in your toolkit though. And, yeah, hopefully it's only really short-lived and then you get to experience the benefits of having a fat-burning metabolism, which are life-changing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey guys, I hope you've been enjoying today's episode. I wanted to let you know that it has been brought to you by the SIBO cookbooks. I'm so excited to have this series of cookbooks that are now available to help you on your journey, making cooking for SIBO so much easier and giving you inspiration in the kitchen. Just because we're eating for a special diet doesn't mean it needs to be restricted. The good news is the cookbooks are now available both in Australia and North America. So if you've been wanting to get your hands on an edition that uses Fahrenheit and pounds and ounces and that you're seeing recipes and ingredients using words that you recognize and love, then make sure you head to breathtests.com to grab your copy of the North American edition of the SIBO cookbooks. They are dispatched for American and Canadian customers locally so you only need to pay postage from a local level and for those of you in Australia or the rest of the world make sure you head to thehealthygut.co where you can grab your copy of the Australian cookbook. Now let's get back to the show. One thing I hear from people um, quite frequently in the SIBO community is enormous guilt over their sugar cravings and people get trapped into a cycle. They say to themselves, okay, today is the day that I'm not going to have sugar and I'm cutting down my carbs. And then they get to three or four o'clock and they break and they eat something and then they are so remorseful that they've done it um, that they then eat more because they're guilty and they're angry and they're like, well, I've ruined the day. I may as well just go out and go to go crazy now on, on all things sugar and carbs. I'll start tomorrow. And, the, and I hear this so often with people and then particularly those with SIBO that they then um, will often have quite a big flare because they've consumed food that is immediate fuel for the bacteria in the small intestine. So then they'll be bloated and they might have diarrhea or constipation and they're miserable. How can we break that immediate cycle um, and particularly the, the psychological component of just, you know, 
remorse and hatred that we feel when we we haven't been able to achieve the goal we've set out to achieve of going lower carb yeah I don't have a magic answer for you here because unfortunately a lot of it is in the the willpower to acknowledge that if you have you know one serve or, or one item that is you know, in your mind, what you were going to attempt to avoid, that doesn't mean that you've ruined anything. You know, it's, it's very easy to put, you know, a stop sign in place and acknowledge that you, you can stop right there. It's going to be physically hard because we know that the, the carbohydrates perpetuate the cravings, but your mind is very strong. So it can just be the, you know, whether it's the cognitive behavioural therapies that you use or it's the conversations that you have with yourself. But it, it is usually at that 3.30 or 4 o'clock, if not after dinner, as you mentioned, you know, your previous habits. And behaviourally, it's what you do at this time. So, you know, you want to set yourself up for success with what I mentioned before about, you know, making sure you're hydrated and that you're not tired but I like the techniques of the visual stop sign or some people like to, you know, wear the rubber band or the hairband around their wrist, which they flick as the circuit breaker. Um, it might be that you boil the kettle and have a cup of tea or go for a walk around the block. You've just got to distract yourself because the cravings pass and the eating after dinner um, habit can be broken. But uh, like any skill, it has to be practiced. You know, it's, it's like any muscle that you would strengthen in the gym. You've got to have the, the willpower to practice and it will become your new normal in time, but you've just got to commit to making those changes. And I know it's not like probably the answer that people are looking for, but there isn't a magic pill. It's a lot to do with your relationship with food and the conversations that you have with yourself because you know, you can put a stop to those behaviours if you strengthen that willpower muscle. I One of the things that I did to help break some of those habits, because it really was behavioural habits that, you mm. know, three o'clock, four o'clock, I'd, I'd have a coffee and a, and a little sweet treat. And, um, and after dinner, I'd be searching for some chocolate or another sweet thing. So I would get up and go and do something completely different. I'd either... Um, go for a walk at three or four o'clock, just to even just around the block, just to get up and do something. Or I would organise when I was still an employee in the corporate world. I would organise a meeting for that time, just something that could preoccupy my brain so that I was not focused on. Oh my gosh, I really need to eat that sweet thing. And then after dinner, it would be going for a walk. So meeting up with friends and organising to go for a walk or, you know, family or a partner or even just myself. Um, I love listening to podcasts and going for walks. It's my hour of just me time. And um, and so just doing something completely different um, really helped those initial days. Yeah. In terms of those initial days, a question that I people will want to know is, should we go cold turkey and just immediately like wake up tomorrow, bang, we've reduced our carbohydrate load or should we ease ourselves into it over a period of time? 
Yeah, I think that depends on where you're starting from, to be honest. So if it's a more conventional approach, like more of a, like we were saying with the 6 to 11 serves of whole grains a day, like quite food pyramid driven, then I think gradual is going to make things much nicer for you. Um, And the first step would be to switch from any refined carbohydrates over to whole food carbohydrates. Like I think it's really important that we separate the two because we don't want to demonize this macronutrient group as a whole because carbohydrates are even found in non-starchy vegetables, right? Um, where So if you're having a lot of the refined, even if it is the gluten-free versions that are still basically a science experiment made in the lab, move over to having the you know a little bit of starchy veggies or some fruit if you can tolerate that obviously um, as the first step but then start to work down from there so you know it might be that you go down to half a cup of as a serve with each meal and then you start to drop out dinner and then lunch and then breakfast for example but You don't want to just take them out and leave yourself with less food. You want to obviously make sure you've got at least two cups of the non-starchy veggies on with each meal, the palm-sized piece of protein and, you know, one to two decent serves of a good fat so that you're getting that satiety out of the meal and that's giving you the fuel that you need, like the energy, without it coming from the carbohydrates that you've been dependent on for so long. So, that would be my recommendation for someone that is, um, yeah, following more of a standard Australian or a standard American type diet. Um, but if you're someone that's already dabbling in real food and maybe you're aware of LCHF, then you can dive in the deep end because your body is not so geared to burning sugar that the you know the detoxification process and that metabolic grey zone is always relative to what you've been eating. So it's going to be, you know, less severe per se in someone that's already been jerfing, which is just eat real food. How do we know how low carb we should go? Well, it's very relative to a few things. And I like to start with, you know, my clients that I work with personally, we actually look at their physiology. So we get their fasting blood sugar, fasting insulin and their glycated hemoglobin, which is their HbA1c which is an indicator of their diabetes risk. So essentially, you know, we have some goals for these parameters that can show us that, you know, if, if for example, someone's fasting insulin is quite high, like above 5, and the HbA1c is above 5.3%, that they need to be going, you know, quite low. So maybe 15% of their daily intake to start. Um to reset that carbohydrate intolerance that we so clearly see in their pathology. But if someone's really healthy and their insulin's, you know, three and their HbA1c is five, then they might find that, you know, 20 or 25% of their daily intake is adequate. But it depends on lots of other things and exercise in particular plays a big role because, you know, if you're quite sedentary, you, you really don't need many carbohydrates at all. But if you're a glycolytic athlete, if you're doing CrossFit or, you know, you're doing high intensity weights or you're doing um, interval training of, of something aerobic, uh, sorry, anaerobic in nature, then, you know, you do need more carbohydrate. So it's a sliding scale that um, is really important to remember that, you know, essentially N equals one. So it's very individual. 
but I, you know, I doubt there's going to be many people that need more than 25% um, of their daily intake coming from carbohydrate. How do we work out the carbohydrate intake? What's Do you have any handy tips on how we can be Yeah, I mean, that? I get all of my athletes to use a platform like MyFitnessPal or Easy Diet Diary to start. It's a little bit time-consuming, but it's very powerful from an education point of view so that we can be confident that we're eating the right volume of food because calories still count, um, but also that we can explore the ratio of the carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Um, and I, I get my um, clients to use satiety as their biggest indicator. So satiety means that feeling means that feeling of fullness. So if you are getting five hours out of a meal, i.e. you're not hungry or hangry or craving sugars, then you know that you've got a fairly good balance of macronutrients on your plate. So using satiety as an indicator can tell you, you know, how um, correct your macronutrient balance is for you. Versus if you're hungry in two or three hours, I can guarantee you you're either eating too many carbs and or not enough healthy fats. Um, So you've got to tweak your macronutrients that way. And I don't think we need to live by numbers at all, but I think initially when you're learning more about food and you're going to try LCHF or even keto, being aware of what foods have what macronutrients and what that adds up to in one meal, in three meals, in a day is really, really powerful from an education standpoint. And then you can move away from logging, of course, and it becomes more um, second nature and innate. Weight loss and weight gain are the are two of the um, issues that people um, in my community face. And uh, there doesn't really seem to be the, the, the pool of people that just sit at a normal weight range that they're happy with. Either people are losing a lot of weight and they're feeling very anxious around how they can put some weight on. And then there's the people like me who just put on weight, you know, every single day despite eating very clean and healthy food um, and feeling really frustrated about it. Do you use the the low-carb, high-fat way of eating to help manage weight gain and weight loss? Yeah, I do because LCHF is a spectrum. You know, essentially it just means real food and it's a sliding scale with where those macronutrients sit. So to talk quite broadly, which is hard to do when you talk about nutrition because it's very individual, but... Weight loss would be obviously where we want to lower the carbohydrate intake to facilitate greater fat burning, which is how we want to burn body fat to achieve that weight loss. Whereas weight gain is usually where we can give slightly higher carbohydrates and higher calories. It's still LCHF. I wouldn't give anyone refined foods um, to put on weight like I see some recommendations, um, unfortunately. And it is just about that balance. Obviously, with SIBO, you know, you have pulled out a lot of carbohydrates, so you have to be a little bit more strategic with where you get them from if you're struggling to gain weight. Um, it's still very possible. And, you know, with the biphasic, you, you, you might be on the semi-restricted phase and you can get more resistant starch in from white rice, for example, provided it's tolerated, and that can help with someone that's struggling to put on weight. Um, there's a lot of strategies you can you can use though because 
you know, for a very long time, probably 50 years in fact, we've looked at weight loss as being, all right, what you've got to do is eat less and move more and weight gain is the opposite. You've got to eat more and move less. But human beings and human physiology is so much more complex than that. There's so many more hormones and, and lifestyle factors that we have to look at as well. So that's important when we're looking at the individual and what their body compositional goal is. And I know for some people in the SIBO community that they can tolerate some potato. Um, yeah. And and I think um, what I um, really encourage people do is these, these food lists that have been developed for SIBO are guides. They're not the Bible. They're not something to adhere to rigidly. Um, experiment with foods. Look at if you're really struggling to keep weight on, perhaps looking at some of these other natural higher carbohydrate foods and seeing if you can tolerate them. Um, you know, you might find that you can have some sweet potato or some white potato in your diet that will help, um, you know, add that carbohydrate load that um, it might not be on a list, but if you can tolerate it, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and especially when we looked at look at the white rice and white potato, the cooked and cooled example, that resistant starch can be really beneficial for our microbiome. So, yeah, I think it's really important to experiment with those foods. Mm. We've we've touched slightly on exercise and movement, and I'd really like to go into that more deeply now. Um, and again, we seem to have two camps in the SIBO world. We've got uh, the people that are going crazy with their exercise, they love it, but it might perhaps not be the best thing for them at this very point in time when they're really in a big flare. Um, there seems to be a lot of people doing CrossFit or pretty high energy intensity exercise. I know I was at the height of my triathlon um, training and doing triathlons um, just before my SIBO diagnosis. And I, was, I was working out six to seven times a week, pretty big sessions and being exhausted <laughs> from them. Um, and But then there's also the other camp of people who they're, they're just so exhausted and fatigued from being chronically unwell that they're really not moving a lot. How can we um, approach exercise and movement um, when we are dealing with a chronic condition like SIBO? Yeah, I think that's a great question and it's really important to – to look at, you know, what you're trying to achieve, obviously. But we we use um, something called the MAF method or the MAF method, which is a formula that can give you the right heart rate to train in the aerobic zone, which is going to be much more gentler on the body. So it's 180 minus your age, which gives you the heart rate. So let's say you're 30, 180 minus 30 is obviously 150. So that means anything under a heart rate of 150 is aerobic, which is away from that stressful intensity. And it's actually really great for developing, um, you know, an aerobic system. And it's also where your body will preference fat as its fuel. So it's great for developing metabolic efficiency. That can be a really safe place to be. Um, but for some people that's actually quite hard to get their head around because it may involve a lot of slowing down, you know, especially if it's a triathlon and you're used to running at, you know, a heart rate of 180, of course that's extremely anaerobic and very stressful and it will definitely perpetuate the exhaustion and fatigue. But to slow down for a lot of people is very hard to wrap their head around, especially the type A personality who want to go harder and faster only. But it's actually not a very smart way to train at all. The math method is 
perfect for endurance athletes and aerobic athletes, um, especially because we really do need to be developing that aerobic system. And then if we look at our CrossFitters, um, I think they just need to be smarter with how much intensity they actually add. You know, you should be doing a balance of aerobic training, which is underneath that heart rate. Um, And it really depends on what state of health you're in as to if you should be going above at all. And it might be just, you know, the acceptance that you have to have a little break from that that especially glycolytic activity um, or at least dropping down the number of sessions you're doing per week first and supplementing with more of the aerobic, whether it's walking or, or yoga or something that you enjoy because I think exercise is, or movement is still really important. Um, but understanding your physiology a little bit more and staying away from that really stressful zone and heart rate is really important when you're recovering from an illness. It's really interesting hearing about the MAF method. I actually hadn't heard of that before and I'm going to go and work out what mine is and and look at where I've got a Fitbit that Mm. measures my heart rate. So it will be really easy for me to just test some of the exercises that I do. Um, But it's, it's so interesting because I speak to so many people with SIBO now and hear from them from all around the world. There really is a personality type that is more predominant, um, in the community, and that is we are type A overachievers. We are the people that will push ourselves to the nth degree to, you know, exercise the hardest, exercise the longest, um, do the greatest. And that was me. I am all or nothing. And it seems like so many people in the community are just like me. <laughs> we are all or nothing. And, and I laugh looking back to my triathlon days that. No, it probably wasn't the best thing for me, but I was, I'm very competitive. I was doing it in a team environment where I was trying to beat my personal best times. I was trying to beat others, particularly new people as they came into the group. I wanted to be faster or fitter or stronger than them. And, um, you know, it was really, really difficult to pull back. And the only way I pulled back was injury. I mm. fell off my bike, skewered my leg with my handlebar, completely pulverized my quad muscle and had enforced 12 weeks off as my muscle repaired. And that kind of broke the cycle. But if I hadn't have fallen off my bike, I think I would have found it really, really hard to slow down. And then I moved to Bikram Yoga where because I couldn't use my leg as much and I was trying to rebuild my strength. So I then did Bikram yoga seven days a week. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's crazy. And it's only now that I'm really, so I'm so much slower, but it's really tough. It's fascinating though, because usually, you know, type A, really intelligent people, but they completely lose sight of like physiology and they end up training in what we call this black hole. So that's the heart rate directly above your math heart rate. So let's say in the example that I used, 180 minus 30, 150, if that person is training at like 155 or 160 or 165, it's this black hole where it's so stressful for the body, it's anaerobic, so you're not going to develop a bigger heart or a better lung function 
function. You're not going to burn fat and you're just going to wear yourself out and you're not going to get results. So your brain's going to tell you you need to do more. So what happens? You perpetuate the problem even further. So it's actually really important to have a, a, you know, a base level understanding of physiology to know what intensity you should be exercising at to get the actual benefit from the purpose of the session that you're doing. And we've almost forgotten about that in the athlete space. It's so true. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling as I'm sitting here talking to you because I trained with this triathlon group for, oh, it must have been about two years, 18 months to two years. And I was that person. I was training harder and harder and harder. I wasn't seeing the results. I mean, I was training six to seven days a week. Mm. I was not losing weight. And I had... I had weight to lose. I was eating well. Um, you know, I was training in the morning and the evening. I was pushing myself so hard, but I wasn't seeing the results. So I was, you know, like, like you say, thinking, well, I'm not doing it hard enough. I've got to go harder. Ironic, mm. <laughs> isn't it? Unfortunately. It mm. really is. And unfortunately, that that kind of information often isn't shared, particularly, you know, if anyone that's not a, prof- a professional athlete where you do have that support and, and really qualified, educated people supporting you when you're just the average Joe trying to do something healthy, um, often we're doing it blindly. Yeah, and I won't take credit for it. It's Phil Maffetone, who is a very um, well-known um, coach in the endurance space. So MAF stands for Maximal Aerobic Function, but it's also MAF, so Phil Maffetone, if um, you want to read more. Wonderful. What about the people that are exhausted? They're feeling awful and they're just they're listening yeah. to this and they're thinking, yeah, in your dreams, like I could ever go and do a CrossFit yeah. session or triathlon, how do we help them um, get out of bed or off the couch? Yeah, I think it's just starting gradually. I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with just walking for movement. I mean, there's so many benefits of exercise even just from an endorphin and a mental wellness point of view, that I think, you know, some some sort of daily movement is really important. So obviously it depends on how exhausted you are, but even if you can just integrate a few walks around the block into your day, um, that's going to give you benefits of things like sunlight and vitamin D, which is essential for, you know, obviously bone strength, but also your metabolism and your hormone production um, and you, you'll start to feel better. So that can be a really big part of the healing journey. And even if it is five minutes, you know, you can just build on that each you know, week or each fortnight. I think don't worry about anything high intensity. Your body will tell you when you're ready to step back into that. Or if you, if you do it too early, you'll know on the other side that you weren't quite ready. And that can be a difficult lesson to learn. But you know, chronic illness is interesting because it does, it forces you to slow down, similar to the injury example that you gave, Rebecca. But you've got to be able to be intuitive and just be quite gradual with how hurried you are to get back because, you know, you've got to look after your health as number one. You won't have any performance without health. Exactly. And and for me these days, walking is 
my go-to, which is so funny coming from the way I've trained in the past. Mm. I put a podcast on, I go for a walk. I don't even walk that hard. Um, You know, I really listen to my body now. If I'm feeling quite fatigued, I'll do a gentle walk. I'll go somewhere where it's flat um, and I'll just literally use it as a mechanism to get outside, get some sunlight, get fresh air, take some time out, get away from the computer and just move my body because I know that when I move, it helps my digestive process as well. Um, And then on the days when I'm feeling stronger or fitter or, you know, like I can do a bit more, I might go somewhere where there's hills or I might walk up and down some stairs, Um, but I'm still just keeping it to walking. And, um, you know, it's, it's really nice actually to slow down, but it's taken me a long time to be able to get here. I'm the same because I come from a triathlon background and I'm not training or racing at the moment, but it probably took me about, you know, three years to feel comfortable with making the decision. (laughs) You know, it's hard to to take a step back, but you've just got to look at what your body needs at that point in time and, and know that, you know, what you were doing will always be there when you get ready. If you, if you do, you know, want to return to it when you're in a better state from a health point of view. Exactly. Steph, it has been wonderful to have you on the Healthy Gut podcast today. Um, How can people connect with you if they would like to? Yeah, absolutely. So we're at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. So that's our little online hub. Um, and we have a email list that you can add your details to if you'd like to get weekly recipes and performance tips and giveaways delivered straight to your inbox. And then social media is where we hang out the most. So Instagram and Facebook at The Natural Nutritionist. Um, and Twitter, we're not so active, but it's Nat, so N-A-T, Nutritionist. Um, and I'll give you all those links, Rebecca. I'd love to hear from anyone that wants to share their story or if they have any questions that we haven't addressed today, I'd be more than happy to help. It's been so great to speak with you today. And you've also got your own podcast, which I'd love to for you to share that with people so yeah, that they know where course. they can go and listen to you. Absolutely. So our podcast is on iTunes. It's The Real Food Real. So it's all about real food. We do have a performance focus, but we speak about everything you know, health and wellness, and we have an episode that's released every Thursday. So it's weekly. I'd love you guys to check out The Real Food Reel as well. Fantastic. I'm sure they will. And I was, you know, thrilled to be a guest on your podcast um, several weeks ago now. So for anyone listening, you can head over to that podcast and and hear um, Steph and I talking about my own journey with health and gut health and all the rest. (laughs) So thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Steph. I'm sure you can tell by the the interview. I just really enjoyed chatting to her. Uh, She's so interesting. If you would like to get the show notes from today's show or any of the links mentioned, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash low carb. And... As I've mentioned on previous episodes, I'm developing a SIBO snack range and also a SIBO ready-made meal range. And I do have a survey for fellow SIBOers to tell me exactly what they need out of this range of food. I want to make sure that when it hits the shelves and when it becomes available online, it meets the dietary requirements you want it to meet. I'm, you know, I'm really doing this to help all of you guys have the best 
options when it comes to SIBO-friendly food. So make sure you head to thehealthygut.co forward slash low carb and you will see the link to be able to complete the survey there. And I promise it will take you no more than two minutes. And if you found today's episode to be useful, don't forget to leave a rating and review so that others know that this is an episode that would be worthwhile tuning into. And come over to see us in our Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Pinterest and Google Plus pages. We've got a whole heap of free resources and recipes and inspiration and articles on those pages for you. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. On next week's show, Dr. Jason Wysocki comes back onto the podcast. And today we're doing a subject which I think is really important, and that is talking about men with SIBO. The online communities are very female-focused. There's a lot more women in them than there are men. And I think it's really important that we talk about why SIBO is different for men versus what the experience is like for women and who better to ask than a wonderful male doctor himself, Dr. Jason Wysocki from Eight Hearts in Portland. And this was a lovely podcast that I was able to do in Dr. Wysocki's office when I was in Portland recently. So I hope you enjoy that podcast coming up next week on the Healthy Gut Podcast. See you then. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. 